Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Fagor Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Today, we are devoting our entire program to what the United States has done right, what it's done wrong, and the lessons learned over the past two decades since the 9-11-2001 terror attacks by Al-Qaeda that killed more than 3,600 Americans in New York City, at the Pentagon, and in a field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Joining us today for this important conversation are Dr. Gordon Adams, American University Professor Emeritus and Quincy Institute Fellow, who served as the Defense Budget Chief at the Office of Management and Budget during the Clinton administration and somebody who has been engaged in the uh, intellectual debate uh, about uh, these wars since 9-11. Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm, Capital Alpha Partners, who was at ground zero on September 11, working across the street from the Twin Towers where the jets uh, struck and has covered how the defense industrial base and net American national security have changed over the past two decades. Dr. Evelyn Farkas, who served as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia during the Obama administration. She also ran for Congress, but unfortunately did not get elected to replace Nita Lowy in upstate New York. She was a Senate staffer uh, at the Russell Building on 9-11, working counterterrorism issues at the time, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who uh, has many affiliations, including with the Center for Strategic and International Studies, uh, who was part of the senior leadership team uh, at the Pentagon, um, was not at the building, but there the day after, uh, and certainly has been working Afghanistan issues for uh, the past two decades to this very day, uh, I might add, uh, Dove, you, you continue to work those issues. Everybody, thanks very much for joining us today. Uh, before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. And please check out our weekly Cavus Ships podcast with our contributing editor, Christopher P. Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who take a deep dive into naval issues each week. I should point out our naval coverage is sponsored by Finn Contieri Marinette Marine and Huntington Ingalls Industries and General Electric Marine sponsored our coverage of the Navy League's uh, Sea Airspace Conference and Trade Show last month. Um, thanks again, everybody, for joining us. Evelyn, I want to start with you. It's been a while since you've joined us, uh, certainly since you ran for Congress. So welcome back and, and great to have you on. Um, you. you were on the job uh, in the Russell Building the, that chaotic morning. Uh, you were, in fact, um, uh, been working on the war on terror and its consequences ever since, right? I mean, you were negotiating supply routes with our Russian friends uh, to be able to get uh, our supplies and folks uh, to uh, Afghanistan. Uh, Let's start with what we got right, and I want to go around the horn, Dove, Gordon, and then Byron. What did we get right uh, in this 20-year uh, campaign? Well, obviously, what we got right, Vago, was that we gave the Taliban an ultimatum. We said, give up your support for al-Qaeda, um, or we will attack you, essentially. And the, and the Taliban leadership refused to give up their um, safe haven for al-Qaeda, and we attacked. We ultimately were able to uh, dismantle uh, the top leadership. And of course we captured bin Laden himself much later. So those were clear things that we got right. And we did it in a way that was multilateral. So the first time NATO declared article five collective action against an enemy was in response to the attack on the United States by Al Qaeda on 9-11. 
So that was also, and then we took actions with our allies, as I said, not only the NATO allies, but allies around the world. So that was also successful. Um, I don't know if you want me to get to what we did wrong. Um, well, uh, well, let's let's go let's go around the horn. I mean, I want to get sure. uh, the right part of it, and then let's then delve into uh, what it is that we got uh, not as as right. Because I think that ultimately we want to learn lessons from these experiences. I mean, I think that when people look at Afghanistan as a failure. The, the question is, did you achieve much of what you wanted to achieve, which is to disrupt the safe haven, right? And and we we did that. The question is whether we can exert enough pressure on the Taliban to continue, uh, certainly with that aim. Dove, you were uh, in the seat uh, during all of these uh, d- deliberations. You know, I should point out that your former boss, the late uh, Donald Rumsfeld, was also one of the people who was skeptical about distracting our attention and uh, doing Iraq. And what did that mean for geostrategy? But I want to get to the point of what it is you think uh, you got right uh, then and the elements of this that we have gotten right as a nation over the past two decades, uh, not, not just in the beginning element of it, as, as Evelyn said, but, but sort of more lastingly in your view. Well, I, I think the most lasting uh, thing we got right is that we created a Department of Homeland Security. We created a counterterrorism center and we we got everybody to be much more aware of of the impact of external terrorism. And uh, uh, clearly the the proof of the pudding is we haven't had an external attack in 20 years. Uh, That's a big deal. That wasn't the case, of course, before. Remember, we had an attack on the World Trade Center in 1993 as well. So I think that is a long lasting uh, uh, positive outcome. Uh, whether we can protect our people overseas from a reconstituted Taliban that has a Haqqani in its government is a, is a whole other issue that we might discuss later. But certainly protecting the homeland uh, has certainly changed for the better uh, under presidents of both parties. In, in addition to that, uh, I think Rumsfeld should get a lot of credit for pushing hard against the military and uh, really making drones part of our military capability and also building up the special forces. Uh, Presidents of both parties use them. Um, We are gonna continue to use them uh, in uh, places like Africa. Uh, And so I think that's also a a positive legacy. Uh, Clearly um, the, the biggest thing of course is the protection against terrorists. And I think we demonstrated that terrorism is a problem, but it's not an existential problem. And in that respect, it it really does allow us to focus on the real major threats that we might face, which are uh, the Chinese and the Russians. I think the panic over terrorism, uh, over external terrorism has diminished. And that is one um, major outcome, I think, of these 20 difficult years. Um, I, 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 uh, it's amazing what 20 years does uh, by way of hindsight, right? Because at the time we were looking at this certainly as existential. And, and one of the factors that did drive us to Iraq was this concern uh, that these radicalized groups would get access to weapons of mass destruction and then uh, use them obviously uh, against uh, the United States and its allies. Um, Gordon, let me uh, bring you in, into the into the discussion. Right, I mean, you you had agreed, uh, you know, about going into Afghanistan. We discussed that last week in our uh, program when we were looking at the aftermath uh, of uh, twenty years of war in that country as we round the bend on on nine eleven. Um, and yet, but what do you think? What do you think as as somebody who was always a responsible statecraft guy uh, and one of the people who helped create the Quincy Institute that is focused on that? 
what what do you think the United States got right? Because global counterterrorism cooperation is a lot better uh, across the peace and nations that we don't even really get along with very well. We have a tendency of building a pretty good counterterror uh, uh, alliance with, and, and obviously intelligence always makes unusual bedfellows. But ultimately, what do you think we got right over the past uh, 20 years? Well, I have to say that the, behind the two things that I think we got right lurks a bulking shadow of so many things we got wrong that it could probably exhaust the rest of the broadcast. But the two things that I do think... We'll, uh, we'll get to that in a minute, uh, Dr. Right. Adams. <laughs> the two things that I think we got right uh, are... are, uh, are one is important and the other is limited, but nonetheless, I think they, they echo what Dove and uh, Evelyn were saying. Number one, uh, I, I continue to believe that we got right the initial exercise in Afghanistan. That is to say, we, we did that in the right way. It was appropriate to take down the Taliban. It was done in the right way in the sense that we used an indigenous military capability, the Northern Alliance. We supported where, with air support and intelligence and some spec ops on the ground. And we took down a regime that, as Dove correctly says, simply refused to deny Al-Qaeda the access to its territory for the purpose of planning further terrorist attacks. So that very limited thing, we got right. Uh, the, the list of what we got wrong in Afghanistan goes from there. But that was, I think, some, one thing we got right. The other is, as uh, both have said, it is true that there have been no... For, there, no, not no. There have been very few foreign influence terrorist attacks on the territory of the United States. Uh, what we attribute that to is sometimes at the price of American civil liberties. But nonetheless, there have not been a lot of foreign terrorist activity inside the borders of the United States. Bracket. 90% of the terrorist attacks that have happened since 2001 in the, in the territory of the United States are domestic terrorist attacks, largely from the right wing. But that is, those two things, I think, are the things that one can arguably say we probably got right. And as you say, I supported the effort to take down the Taliban when it happened in 2001. Uh, and uh, the creation of the Department of Homeland Security was possibly on balance, not a bad idea, but there are a lot of debate about that. Um, I, and I uh, should uh, say that we are going to be talking about uh, sort of the the errors that were made and what we can learn from them, uh, certainly as we uh, continue to operate uh, in the in the future. Uh, Byron, you were uh, there on 9-11. Um, and I, I can say that as a, a New Yorker, you know, knew it before there was uh, the Twin Towers. Uh, there were holes in the ground when they were building them. Uh, I had my high school graduation dinner there. Um, and, and you and I used to go there for drinks, actually, uh, because your, your office was uh, across the street uh, from, uh, from the buildings and, and used to go through the lobby of that building, given that you used to take the subway uh, to, to, to get to work. Um, you know, what, what do you think we got right? And, and especially from a defense industrial standpoint, what are, what are the, the positive changes and, and the broader what we got right from, from your perspective? Look, I agree with everything that Dove, Gordon, and Evelyn have, have talked about some of the positives. I think one positive, and I'd really put this with a small P, and it really pertains more to Iraq than Afghanistan, but we started to think a lot harder about agility in, in faster acquisition processes. I mean, I, I don't think the AMRAP program is necessarily the, uh, the shining example of this, but 
we were dealing with a thinking uh, um, responsive adversary and we really had to change elements of acquisition to deal with things like IEDs. So, um, you know, and you kind of see the seeds of that that were sown, particularly during Iraq that are now being reflected in how the DOD is thinking about competing with Russia and China. I'll say one point, you know, that day for me, um, I don't want to go through all the personal story, but but at one point I was in Washington Square Park uh, and it was after the second tower fell and there was an F-15 that uh, flew overhead and the crowd in Washington Square Park burst out into applause. And I think it was, it may have been the first time in a while that there was this kind of direct link between the U.S military and its population, population of the United States, that, wow, these guys are really here to protect us. And maybe that's frayed a bit over the last 20 years, but boy, I saw it that day in, in a place that you don't typically associate uh, uh, support for the military, Greenwich Village in New York. So I throw that on the heap as something that I, I thought was an interesting initial thread. But again, I think that's changed a bit. Um, and, and we're going to talk a little bit about um, how that changed from God Bless America on the steps of the Capitol to January 6th yeah. uh, and the political tone. And I, I remember actually uh, walking in Roslyn to get in my car and then take forever to get across Key Bridge. Um, and uh, two uh, F-16s actually flew over uh, Key Bridge and the uh, AFA building, actually, the Air Force Association building. And I remember uh, folks sort of cheering and clapping as, as they, they saw that happen, even though you could see a column of smoke uh, going into the, into the sky um, from the attack on the Pentagon. Um, Evelyn, I, I want to come back to you, right? So, and, and kind of go around the horn uh, in terms of what it is we got wrong and what are the important lessons to learn from, from that? I think, um, you know, however chaotic the withdrawal from Afghanistan, uh, President Biden certainly is trying to re-gear and focus on vital national interests. Uh, in a couple of weeks, we're going to have uh, Dr. Gordon, uh, excuse me, Dr. Graham Allison on uh, to talk to us about that as one of our strategic uh, Andy Marshall conversations. Uh, you know, you mentioned Andy uh, before, uh, uh, Dove. Um, you know, and, and certainly Andy uh, did weigh in on some of these strategic debates uh, as, as a first order strategist. But Evelyn, I wanted to get your take. So what, what, it is, what is it we got wrong? And from your standpoint, what are, what are sort of the enduring lessons as we transition to another phase, but we'll still have to counter uh, not just uh, international terrorism, but actually international extremism and even domestic extremism at this point. Right. So there, there's a whole long list of the things that we got wrong. I mean, obviously, in the early phases, though, we were successful at um, crippling Al Qaeda. Um, it took us a little while and it took us longer than it should have. So there's a lot that's been written about Operation Anaconda and um, Secretary Rumsfeld's hesitation about putting in a, sufficient troops at the right time. Um, later, of course, as we know, we went in, we, we had a mission creep <laughs> and, we, and we put in more troops than we should have for longer than we should have. Um, you know, we can talk about that for hours. Um, the other thing we did wrong was very quickly, and I know this from working on the Hill at the time, we pivoted and the Department of Defense pivoted to Iraq. So um, Dove will know this very well because the budget people were the first people to alert us that there's something that no kidding DOD is planning for a war in Iraq. That took our eye off the ball with Afghanistan. We also had an intelligence failure there in terms of 
um, the, the, the argument that was made for going into Iraq. Um, again, I won't go on, I won't belabor that point. We can talk about all these issues for about another hour. Unilateralism, that was another issue, especially in the context of Iraq. So we went from Afghanistan where we were multilateral to Iraq where all of a sudden it broke down starting very dramatically with Turkey not allowing our forces through their country to invade Iraq. Um, we had the war crimes that occurred in Abu Ghraib and elsewhere, the um, essentially official sanctification, if you will, uh, if you will, of, of war crimes, really, um, and the establishment of Guantanamo. Um, that, that led us down a path that really did sully the U.S. reputation to this day. Um, I don't believe we've recovered from that. Um, and so what are the lessons? I'll try to run to them quickly. Um, first of all, obviously you have to know what your objective is. <laughs> and in Afghanistan, we very quickly lost uh, focus on our objective and we started making up new objectives, which made it then harder to be able to frame for the American people and really frankly for ourselves as policymakers, what the end state should look like. The other huge problem in Afghanistan, in Iraq, everywhere, was that we were really military heavy. Our focus was on using the military instrument. Why? Because, you know, that is the most capable, well-funded, you know, portion of the U.S. government. But it really should have been all along diplomacy first in the case of Afghanistan and then obviously the whole global war on terror. Um, and we still have yet to really come up with a better way of, um, of putting American foreign policy um, you know, sort of with diplomacy first. And that, that, of course, was the failure of the withdrawal in Afghanistan more recently. And then I would say, let, you know, intelligence. Intelligence really does matter. Having objective intelligence analysts um, is important. And we saw the failure, but then we saw the intelligence community, I would argue, um, bounce back from that very effectively with bilateral, uh, you know, Republican and Democratic assistance on the Hill and elsewhere to the point where I think they were effective uh, at pushing back at the Trump administration's efforts to politicize uh, intelligence. And, and I think uh, ultimately, of course, you alluded to this earlier, we have, a, we have a bigger problem now with extremism in America, and some of it is linked to this militarization because we asked a lot of people to make sacrifices. We have a horrible mental health system to begin with, um, and these veterans are coming out with you know, mental and physical conditions that we don't treat well through the veterans <laughs> um, hospital system. And of course, as a society, we have been late to understand that mental health is the same as physical health and it should be treated as such. So that's a long laundry list, but I'll stop because you have a lot of other smart people <laughs> on here. Um, uh, thank you very much. And, 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 and certainly, uh, certainly thoughtful Dove. Uh, and, and then, and then Gordon and Byron, um, give, give us your sense on, on, on what went wrong and what's gone wrong. Um, right. I mean, the great thing about the United States is that it does have an ability uh, to learn lessons. It may not remember those lessons as, as we saw, right? I mean, we made some of the same mistakes in Vietnam. So we have a tendency of, uh, of repeating them, but we also can learn lessons and we can adapt uh, as these wars were one of, of constant adaptation. Uh, Dove? Well, um, mistake number one, uh, obviously was letting bin, got, bin Laden get away from Tora Bora. Um, that would have changed a lot of things. It would have been more difficult uh, for those folks to regroup. Um, but the bigger mistake, the huge mistake, of course, was Iraq, uh, as Evelyn said, 
Um, and there really were two elements to that. The first was the timing. Uh, every intelligence uh, organization in the West believed that he had, uh, that Saddam had nuclear, a nuclear weapons program because his generals were too scared to tell him that he didn't have one. The issue wasn't that. The issue was the timing. And uh, I believe, and no one can, uh, I certainly can't prove it, but I believe that one of the reasons we went in 2003 was because 2004 was an election year and Bush had barely won in 2000. So the people who advocated for this war were worried that if it didn't happen in 03, it might not happen at all if he didn't get reelected. Um, and by focusing on Iraq, we obviously did not finish the job in Afghanistan. Um, we also made a huge mistake in Iraq uh, by naming someone as a proconsul who had absolutely no background in the Middle East and made some uh, very large mistakes, as we know, whether it was disarming the military or getting rid of anybody who knew how to manage anything in Iraq because they were Ba'ath party members. And then uh, tied in with that uh, was simply a, a mistake that uh, we keep repeating. Um, and that is this nation building idea. Uh, George Bush, when I was advising him in 2000, uh, was very open about not doing nation building. 20 years later, Joe Biden is very open about not doing nation building. Before that, uh, Barack Obama was saying we do nation building at home. We have to stop thinking that everybody wants to be just like us and that we have to build nations to look like us. It ain't going to happen. Huge mistake. Uh, and and uh, by doing all of this, we've obviously lost focus on China. We lost focus on what Putin was planning to get up to in Russia. And we also unbalanced the military, I think, because focusing so much on counterinsurgency built up the army, which the army liked a lot, but uh, came at the cost of uh, maintaining a, a larger navy, which we now see. Uh, we need in East Asia, we still probably need in Europe, and we're not pulling out of the Middle East that quickly. So that's just a, a few more uh, laundry items to add to those that Evelyn already listed. Gordon? Uh, yeah, let me expand the list even more. As I said, there's a 800-pound gorilla of mistakes that have been made over the last 20 years, uh, and they go even broader even than some of the things that have already been said, which I will echo. Uh, number one, we, we have spent or will spend something like $6.4 trillion on exercises in Iraq and Afghanistan that were largely, if not completely, failures, uh, resources that could have been spent. If you were near, think narrowly for other purposes in the military, you think more broadly for other purposes in the government or even given back to the taxpayers or not borrowed, I should say, by the federal government. So there is a, a, a misalignment of resources that is a consequence of this. Uh, number two, uh, we uh, contributed directly or indirectly to the de deaths as estimated by the Brown University Costs of War Project to something like 800,000 deaths uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, and in the, amongst American forces, uh, amongst American contractors, there's a huge human cost that has been referred to, Evelyn referred to, uh, the veterans' expenditures. There's probably two, two and a half trillion dollars worth of down the line, downstream veterans uh, disability benefits and hospitalization and medical care that we're just going to have to damn well pay. Um, so there's a huge human consequence here. Incidentally, in Afghanistan, a thousand more contractor personnel were killed than military personnel were killed, and we pay little attention to that. Uh, 
Uh, number three, as has been mentioned, particularly by Dove, we amply demonstrated that whole of government capacity to develop programs that build nations is bankrupt. We cannot do it. We should not even be trying. Uh, number four, we have degraded the quality of truth in American politics. The Washington Post Afghanistan Papers series amply demonstrates that policymakers knew things were not going well in Afghanistan while they were telling us things were going well. That degrades truth. Number five, that means our politics have been degraded in so many ways, it's almost incalculable. But one little piece I, I focus on here is the, is the 1033 program where the military provides military equipment to local police forces that is considered surplus by the military. And so we have images in racial tensions of police wandering around carrying military weapons and using military tactics. Uh, number six, we destroyed America's reputation overseas in the extreme for both incapacity and being a kind of a dominating bully. Uh, number four, number seven, we over-militarized U.S. foreign policy in the extreme at the cost of diminishing our statecraft and the use of diplomacy. Uh, number eight, we destabilized the Middle East by taking out Saddam Hussein, whether you loved him or hated him, the balance of relationships in the center of the Middle Eastern region was systematically destroyed by taking down the Saddam Hussein regime, a mistake. Uh, and number nine, and maybe most important looking forward is we took our eye off the real security issues, not just competition and rebalancing with Russia and China, but competition and rebalancing in the region the region of the Middle East where our credibility was obviously at stake. Uh, today, you can say that Russia, China, Iran, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, UAE, Qatar, all play as big a role, if not bigger role in the politics going forward of the Middle East than the United States does. But we also took our eye off things like economic disparity in this country and internationally, the racial tensions in the United States, the future of American democracy, the problem of climate change, the, the, the massive planning that should have happened for a pandemic that's the worst in 100 years. As I say, we're talking about an 800-pound gorilla, gorilla of 20 years, if you will, of sort of squandered opportunities. Um, I would uh, put your uh, cost calculation far higher uh, than what you have, because we have a tendency of forgetting that the 500 billion or the 700 billion or whatever we're spending, an enormity of that spending was actually shaped by Iraq and Afghanistan concerns as well as, as Dove said, we were continuously shrinking the size of the Navy, shrinking the size of the Air Force in order to underwrite uh, investment that was going, you know what I mean? So it wasn't just the supplemental, which is what people uh, are counting, but actually baseline budget decisions uh, as well. And, and many, many programs that were slowed, for example, for, uh, for, for want of investment. Uh, Byron, let me, let me bring you in. And Gordon, I know that you've got to go. So if you've got to jump off, jump off, because I know that, the, uh, that Quincy today uh, has a major statecraft uh, presentation. And in fact, I would commend the audience to check it out on, on replay. So thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Uh, take a couple, yeah, let me take a couple of slightly different takes. Um, look, first, I think one of the negatives, you know, this was a conflict that was paid for by borrowing, not by taxes. And during both the Korean War and the Vietnam War, there were tax increases in part to pay for those conflicts. So this whole idea that you know, while a couple of Americans or a small portion of the population went to war, the rest of the population went shopping. And I sometimes thought that having a more 
direct link to here are the cost of this, not just in lives and, and um, the impact on people, but hey, you're going to have to pay for some of this too. Um, that, that's something that I hope we would think more clearly about going forward. And that kind of leads me to the second point. I think as much as we want to avoid nation building or, or getting involved in the domestic affairs of other nations, it's inevitable that it's going to happen again. Uh, it was an issue prior to uh, Afghanistan during the 1990s in Somalia and Haiti and the Balkans and in Iraq. And I, I just think it's it would be naive to think that we can just kind of wall ourselves off and not think that these kind of problems are going to occur again. I think it was also, you know, the, the idea that we could kind of waltz into Afghanistan, overthrow the Taliban and leave um, and not have, you know, the same set of circumstances reemerge also needs to be rethought. So we, we have to get better, think more clearly about how we're going to manage these. Uh, it's not just the United States should, should be doing this. Obviously, it's, it's more of a global endeavor, but um, the, this question about domestic stability in other countries is, is not going to go away. And that may lead to a third point. As much as we all focus on China and Russia, you know, I think it's important to recall that great power competition inevitably is going to involve proxy contests. And some of these proxies are going to be waged in parts of the world where there are messy, disruptive states. So um, simply focusing on Indo-Pacific and thinking that's going to solve all our problems. Great power competition is going to certainly crop up in other parts of the world. Uh, you know, Latin America, Africa, the Middle East are all candidates. And we have to be very mindful of that in thinking about our security policies going forward. The last thing that I would raise is just kind of the opportunity cost. You guys talked a bit about that in terms of what we we weren't able to spend money on. But I think there's also a question about the appropriate use or inappropriate use of some of the major platforms and assets that the US had uh, and that were used during the campaign in, in Afghanistan and to a lesser extent, uh, Iraq. I, I think of you know using B-1 bombers to, to strike uh, at the Taliban. I mean, that's a very expensive asset that uh, you probably wanted to preserve for the higher end contingencies and not, not impart the wear and tear that inevitably would happen to that kind of platform and some of the other high end platforms. Air, aircraft we, carriers, right? Yeah, that we carriers. use in these low end contingencies. And there are a whole other range of approaches that could have been used, that we could have funded um, and, and applied that, that would have saved the really expensive, unique hardware for really what it was originally purchased and, and designed for. Um, I would I would point out right I mean the the fascinating element uh, you know uh, right I mean both Evelyn and and Dove right we we created the Green Berets to teach Indigenous fighters how to use technology but not really transform everything about how they fight and instead in Iraq and Afghanistan we were like no 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 how it is you're fighting isn't right and we have to reinvent it and oh by the way we now have to send you to school. Whereas, you know, as we've discussed on this program and not not to try to be cute about it, I mean, fighting is almost a national sport in Af Afghanistan. So it's not like you're teaching, you know, the Taliban how to fight. You, you needed to teach the Afghan army how to maybe use Blue Force Tracker and a couple of other things to be a little bit more effective in the way they do it, as opposed to saying like, oh, well, you guys are all ignorant. So now we have to send you to school because you guys don't know, you know, you have to wear these kind of uniforms and you need to spit and polish and you need to march. 
and it's not abundantly clear that any of those things were as necessary. Yeah, well, Vado, it, it, it's actually more than that. It's more like the Washington football team telling Tom Brady and his team how to play ball, because at the end of the day, it wasn't we and, and our Afghan allies who won this one. Um, that is true. As a good friend of mine yesterday put it, um, we're complimenting the guys for playing good football. The trouble is they were in a hockey game. They showed up to a hockey game. So they were good at football, but the game was hockey, right? Um, and, and that, I think, is an important distinction. Um, let me, um, Evelyn, and, and, and I put this question to, to everybody uh, in terms of, right, each of you have sort of touched on it, but in terms of uh, extremism, right? In the wake of 9-11, there was a lot of patriotism. And for some, including very close friends of mine who were the more highly decorated, the more irritated they were at the cheap, thank you for your service, uh, to, to, to Byron's point, right? I mean, and this was, I believe, a big president, a mistake President Bush made, go out and shop. That's how you can support this war effort. And so very rapidly, it was this, then it was a volunteer military. It wasn't my problem. Whereas folks were going into five combat deployments in a row and broken marriages and suicides and broken families and, and the challenges that came with it. The pernicious part of this, and again, uh, from, from my European uh, American friend, was this notion of the lions led by donkeys. I mean, Adolf Hitler used that very, very effectively to sort of absolve the German military for anything wrong it did. And it was all the political donkeys that did this. Uh, subtext, right? Uh, the the non-Germans, the people who sold us out. And we're trying to create that message again, whereas actually there's plenty of blame to go around. And a lot of these mistakes were made by political leaders, but but military folks made mistakes. I mean, again, the the Taliban bombing at the at the exit from Afghanistan was tragic, but it wasn't like Joe Biden made the decision to put Marines at that gate, right? I mean, those that was a tactical decision at the end of the day. How does what we've seen and how do you guys think it's contributed to the political dysfunction that we have now, whether it's through militarization, transparent and cheap patriotism, and all of the elements uh, that have gone with it that, that people have exploited, right? Let's just be candid about that. Evelyn, perhaps if you want to start us, and, and, then, and then I think Dove's, or Dove, do you want to start this? Because you're, I think, on a slightly shorter leash than everybody else is. Okay, sure. Thanks. Um, I, I think you're right. Uh, part of the problem, of course, is that the military is now a, a very closed society, not deliberately so. It's just that not everybody volunteers. It's a tiny proportion of, of society. Not to, uh, and in addition to that, I should say, uh, bases are closed. You can't get on base. There, there's, it's so difficult if you have no one in the military or don't know anybody in the military to get to know them at all, to get to know what they're about. And so it, it, a lot of this is vicarious stuff. And the, the people who were charging up the hill on January 6th, um, yes, there were some retired military, uh, but there were a lot of others who, who were sort of, you know, playing a game, as it were. And, and of course, it isn't a game. All you had to do was visit the injured at the military hospitals and, and you still can, of course, and, and see that it's hardly a game. So that, that's number one. Number two is a lot of the folks who signed up 20 years ago, 15 years ago, came back to a very different America. Uh, America has moved to the left. Um, you may like it, you may not like it, but that's happened. And for a lot of these people, it was disconcerting. They didn't, they didn't think that that's what they were fighting for. 
Uh, and so it, it's not just the extreme right that's a problem. Uh, as Evelyn learned all too well, the extreme left can be a problem and is a problem. And for some people who thought they were fighting for America, uh, they've discovered they're in a, in a very different America. And I don't know how you solve that very, very quickly. And I think that is one of the legacies of this conflict, because as the conflict wore on, it convinced the left wing that uh, they could push much further, not just on social issues, but just generally about how you viewed this country. And then, as I say, you had these right wing would be armchair uh, armchair generals uh, who kind of thought it was a game. Uh, like the guy running around the Capitol Hill with those uh, looking like he was Thor or somebody. Uh, we, we have a problem here. Uh, it would have been there whether, the, whether or not we had fought in Afghanistan and Iraq. But I think fighting in those wars and fighting as long as we did uh, certainly exacerbated this. Um, let me uh, let me just ask one other tangential question again, because you've got to jump and 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 Byron and Evelyn and I can finish uh, discussing it. You know, Byron, uh, the next question to Byron, or one of the questions I want Byron to weigh in on before we part is how defense industrial uh, relations have also changed, um, some some for the better, as, as Byron pointed out, in terms of speed of fielding systems. On the other hand, um, d d potentially problematically for some, right, I mean, in terms of consolidation uh, and, and a whole bunch of other challenges. I mean, you, you were both sitting in the seat and trying to drive change. You also uh, advise companies uh, in, in the United States and around the world uh, on a strategic sense. How do you think the defense industrial environment, ecosystem, and relationship has changed, both for the good and bad over the past 20 years? Well, uh, it's, it hasn't changed for the better in part because, again, the focus was so much on wars that what Rumsfeld was talking about the day before 9-11, which was he needed to change the way the Pentagon did its business, um, never materialized to the extent he wanted it to. Now, it, it's true that we're a little bit better in acquisition than we were, but it's only a little bit. We still had to build a rapid acquisition system to get around our own acquisition system. We're still far too limited with the number of contractors and our inability to reach out to uh, the commercial world to the extent we should. It's Our R&D is not necessarily the leader anymore. It's the, the commercial world that has so much of the leading edge. Uh, it's still too difficult to contract with the Pentagon. It still takes too long. We still overrun. We still spend more money than we should to. And so uh, bottom line is, uh, yeah, the, these last 20 years uh, essentially froze our ability to, uh, frankly, have a 21st century acquisition system. And we better start catching up now. Dove, thanks very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. It's always an honor and pleasure uh, having you on. Have a great weekend, and I should have said Shana Tova to you. Uh, Happy New Year. Thank you, sir. In terms of the macro impact of Afghanistan, the global war on terrorism, which unfortunately, erroneously wrapped Iraq in, into it as well, the biggest impact of all of this is, frankly speaking, the erosion of American populations, the American people's, the citizens' belief in government as being on their side, as being honest, as being effective. And that has led to a real crippling of our democracy. So I, 
I can elaborate on this, you know, for another 20 minutes or more. Um, but that I think has been the biggest negative impact. All the things I talked about before, the failures of intelligence, the failure to clearly elaborate for the American people what our objective was and how we were going to get there with all of these military engagements, the failure to honestly speak out and, and put the cost on all Americans, so raising taxes, et cetera, all of that eroded American faith in government and in democracy. That was then exploited by people who wanted to exploit it. Correct. Allies are being very self-righteous about this, which is very problematic for some in Washington, right? Ultimately, we told them we're leaving. We did rope them into it. They weren't all particularly that interested in continuing this mission. So I think that that's highly erroneous. And it all collapsed a lot faster than anybody, right? I mean, we have Lisa Curtis on, um, and, and she was the national security director for South Asia and in the room with uh, Zalmay Khalilazad and the Taliban negotiating in Qatar. And, and even she was surprised at how fast uh, the, the Afghan government uh, collapsed. Again, uh, we withdrew contractors, but then again, there was so, so much endemic co corruption that it collapsed. Um, ally, allies are now saying, well, you know, the United States can't be trusted. And um, I think the bigger issue is whether or not we do the right thing when we show up, right? Or we ask people to do stupid things and everybody sort of goes along with it. From an alliance management perspective, given you deal dealt so closely and for so long with allies and partners, what do you think the lesson there is? ultimately? Well, I, I actually want to quibble with your kind of dismissal of their, of their critique and their concerns because their people were put into harm's way by the way that we left unilaterally and in a huge hurry. Um, and not only their citizens, but of course the Afghans who worked for them. And I'm actively working with American citizens and citizens of allied countries to try to get uh, Afghans who worked and have papers to resettle in Canada, Germany, and other places um, out. So I, I do think that they have a legitimate beef there. Um, having said that, you know, I think the lesson they've taken from all of this is that they can't rely on the United States and that this goes beyond just the Donald Trump um, years, that, that in effect, um, Europe needs to, you know, forge its own policy. I disagree with that. And I think um, the focus now on China and great power um, competition, not just with China, but also the ongoing one with Russia, um, will focus the minds again towards working together. I, I certainly hope that that's the only way we can prevail. And in fact, I would argue we need to do it with our allies worldwide, so our Asian allies, Israel and others. Evelyn, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Have a great weekend. Uh, and look forward to having you on again soon. Thanks so much. Thanks, Sago. Take care. Um, Byron. Uh, last man standing. Or last, last, man, last man standing. Uh, what? So give us your sense, right, on the extremism issue uh, and on defense industrial policy. And I'm sorry to get a little bit out of sequence, but I, as, as you can imagine, I was interested in Dove's uh, take on that as, as somebody who has always been a, a thoughtful uh, 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 senior government official and contributor, but what, what's your sense on, on, on both of them, on how this last 20 years, right, erosion of faith in government, as, as, as Evelyn uh, put, right? I mean, there are people who, who say, look, I mean, these guys didn't get Iraq right, they didn't get Afghanistan right, why are they right on masks, right? 
So this does have a tendency of spilling over, even if, you know, we in elite places want to look down our nose at, at, at folks, right? I mean, there, there is this sense that the government really doesn't know what it's doing, whether or not it's fighting wars or fighting pandemics. Um, what, what's yeah, your that, sense on how all of this has contributed to the extremism problem? Um, look, it, it's turbocharged by, you know, frankly, the kind of collapse of maybe a shared consensus that you had through media channels, you know, in, in an age when there were, you know, 10 stations or five stations, depending on where you lived on the TV station, you know, and now you've, you've had this absolute fragmentation of all these separate little news channels and people can kind of pick and choose what they want. Right. Um, and, and, you know, you know <laughs> prior to nine 11, um, you know, sixties and seventies, you know, that might be an occasional newspaper or magazine that you might subscribe to, but, it's just, uh, uh, so I don't think it's going to change easily, Bago. Um, I think that, you know, maybe again, kind of more of the shared, shared responsibilities, but also shared penalties. You know, I'll go back to that tax question. I, I just wonder if someone, if a Republican president had proposed a tax increase to pay for uh, engagement in Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, would that have gotten more attention, more oversight on how these, these conflicts were playing out? Because uh, I think, you know, particularly Afghanistan, it was just largely ignored. Uh, you know, I was trying to go through this past year. There were a couple of think tank events um, that I commend, uh, you know, people like CSIS for holding, but, you know, as part of the popular discussion about what was really going on there, you know, very, very quiet. Um, so the extremist question, I, I suppose the other point is you, you really do need to have penalties and consequences, uh, you know, everything from the people who storm the Capitol, uh, you know, and possibly even for some of the people who crafted strategies and policies that didn't work, you know, the, the corporate world and the, the kind of markets are very good at, um, penalizing companies that fail. And, and I, don't mean that lightly, uh, you know, but I mean, CEOs, boards are, are uh, taken down, you know, stock prices collapse or whatever. And, and I do find it somewhat ironic that during, you know, a period when everybody's looking back on 20 years uh, retrospective, you know, a lot of people were part of the architecture of what happened are they're still here talking about it as if, you know, their role and responsibility was, was nil. And uh, I find that, uh, Maybe something else back to, you know, a term that came out of the Vietnam War, the credibility gap. You know, if, if people feel like, hey, there's no consequence for incorrect decisions, bad resource allocations, uh, you know, incorrect policies, um, the, 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 the views on government will, will prevail. You know, I'll say one other thing that I think is important, and it's been on my mind for a while, but I think, you know, the role of expertise, um, We've kind of diluted that lately, and uh, I feel strongly that, you know, a competent civil service, um, congressional staff that is paid the same level that, that you know, some of the uh, best and brightest, uh, that's the wrong term, the, the congressional staff should be paid commensurately with some of the opportunities that are available to people in other parts of the economy, just so you get the expertise and the perspective, and it's not all one one view or one perspective that's necessary. You want you want you want all different ideas and perspectives. But 
Um, this idea that you can, you know, pay people peanuts and, and hope for the best, uh, we, we need to review that. Maybe that ought to tamp down some of the extremism as well. Um, and, and very, very briefly, I want to get your uh, take on sort of from a defense industrial standpoint, right? Um, how, how we've, we've changed maybe for the worse and what some lessons are uh, going forward, because it, it appears that we are at a cusp, right? Um, you, you listen to what senior leaders are saying. Uh, they admire, they respect what the classical defense industrial base does. But at the, at the same time, they're talking about greater speed pulling from commercial sources. And that can be very threatening for uh, you know, and especially since the department, let's just be honest, has not always rewarded innovators, right? I mean, there, there are guys who've developed, you know, the Pentagon's asked them, go ahead and develop products. The Scorpion stands out, right, by Airland, uh, a Textron yeah. uh, company. And, and then the department doesn't buy it. And, and yeah. that happens all the time. Or they go, uh, hey, Raytheon or Lockheed, that's a brilliant idea. And now we're going to compete it with everybody. And you lose the first mover advantage, right? So how do we, what, what, are, what are the takeaways from your standpoint as we wrap this up? Well, you know, it's, it's really unrelated to Afghanistan and Iraq and kind of what we've been talking about. But I think, you know, over the arc of what I've seen, this whole idea about shareholder value and capital allocation and, and risk aversion, and it, it permeates, it's, it's not a partisan issue in any way, shape or form. It's just kind of the incentive structures that have been built into um, a system that contractors and frankly, the DOD are responding to. So um, I, you know, I thought it was interesting and I keep thinking about a paper that um, Mike Brown and Eric Chuni wrote about the, the kind of the great power marathon and how, you know, and maybe this is part and parcel of what we should all be thinking about, um, you know, at this 20 year mark, it's, it's not an the end of an era, it's, it's, a, it's part of a continuum of an era. <clears throat> the actors are gonna change, but you know some of these same underlying problems are gonna persist. So we probably have to get more risk averse, uh, risk tolerant, uh, not risk averse. Um, you have to build incentives so that companies really are investing in their businesses and not just shoveling free cash flow back out to shareholders uh, through share repurchases and dividends. That, that's part of their strategy, but you know you can look at the data. I mean, that's been pretty unbalanced uh, over, the, over the last couple of, of decade or more. Um, and you know, this idea of bringing new contractors in, good. You know, someone's going to have to take the risk of, hey, you know, five years hence, you know, wh why did you choose small company A when you could have gone with big heritage contractor? Look at how badly you screwed up. There should be some, some space for those kind of changes and mistakes because I do think if you're really going to change and bring in more of these companies, you're going to need to create the, uh, the lanes for them to scale. And that's going to bring people and capital into the defense sector as well, too. Byron, thanks very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. I uh, hope you have uh, a, a great uh, weekend. And we just want to tell our audience that uh, to urge our audience uh, on this uh, 20th anniversary commemoration uh, to think of those, all those uh, who not only lost their lives uh, and found their lives changed on that day 20 years ago, uh, but also all of those who sacrificed so much over the past uh, two decades. Um, because it is, it has been an enormous uh, price uh, that the nation has borne. Uh, thanks very much again, Byron. Thank you. 
And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.